it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 210, and we're going to go back to the listener well and answer some great listener questions that we got recently. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and start. So I have, hello, Andrew. I've been listening to the podcast for a few weeks and I've learned a lot. However, I have a large student loan debt of 500K and wanted to know if you have any type of account besides maybe a money market account to set aside money to allow it to grow quickly over the years to help me pay off my loan faster while I'm doing the monthly payments. Any suggestion would, would be much appreciated. Thank you and look forward to hearing from you very respectfully, Ryan. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Ryan's interesting question? First off, hopefully studying to be a doctor or a lawyer or something. Hopefully. Um, either way, you, I think it's a good idea to try to knock this thing out more if you can. So the question is, how do I set aside some money so I can pay off this loan faster? Is there a place I can put it, let it compound, and then throw that on the debt? And so it's really going to depend on like where interest rates are. Listen to people bemoan the fact that, oh, back in my day, 20, 20 years ago, you could put money at a bank and get 8%, 10%. Today, interest rates are so low, like 1.5% is one of the baseline rates right now and everything above or below that. So banks aren't going to give you much more than 1.5% today. And so if your student loans 3%, then if you're putting money away in any sort of account, you're losing to the student loan. So why not just pay that student loan off faster? That's kind of how I would see it. The only other way you're going to get higher than what you would get at a bank, and again, higher than that baseline rate. So if that baseline rate today is 1.5%, if you want to earn more than that, you have to take on additional risk to do that. Obviously, I do that when I buy stocks, but I also have a very long time horizon. And so that compensates me for the risk because I'm willing to take ups and downs. But when you're talking about savings and you're talking about having huge payments that you're doing on student loans, you might not have the same risk tolerance. And plus there's that clock that's ticking and that student loan 
once once you have to start paying on that, then that interest can start to accumulate on itself. So if that's the case where your student loan interest rate is high, might as well pay it off early. Now, as I answer this, I realize maybe he's talking about he's still in school, so he doesn't have any interest accruing yet, in which case maybe there would be some cause to put some money in an account. And then once you're making regular payments, you just accelerate all those payments and pay them fast. In that case, what would you recommend? Ooh, that's a good question. I, you really have two ways to go. One is you can go the safe and secure route and you can put the money in savings accounts, uh, money market account. They're all going to earn in the same ballpark-ish depending on where you put it. Half a percent to one and a half percent. I think one and a half is the highest I've seen from an online bank, which is not great. If you look at any of the brick and mortar banks, you're, less, you're easily looking at less than a percent in Real terms, less than half a percent is probably realistic. So th- those options are not great. And then, of course, you have the other flip side of that coin, like Andrew was talking about, we can invest in stocks. I don't recommend doing that for money that you're trying to save to put towards something like this. Yes, you could obviously hit it big and pick the next Amazon and make a lot of money and pay off the loan quicker. That'd be great. But the chances of doing that are much slimmer and it's harder to do that. I'm not trying to be negative Nancy, but I'm also trying to to be realistic and think about if you're trying to save whatever money it is you're trying to save, you could end up shooting yourself in the foot by putting it in the stock market because God forbid you put the money in the stock market. And let's say everything's going great and you have two years to graduate just for a scenario. Everything's going great. Three months before you graduate, and you're going to start paying off those loans, your the stock market crashes. And the companies that you've invested in have now lost 50, 60, 70% of their net worth, the, of the earnings that you've accumulated in there. Now what do you do? Now you've basically just, you either have to wait <laughs> and hope that those companies recover, or you have to just sell and, and take your lumps and do that. There is a greater chance of upside, but there's also a greater chance of a downturn too. So like Andrew is saying, there's a risk tolerance that, that you have to have when you're investing in stocks. And for any sort of short-term monies that you want to use for anything, buying a house, paying student loans, whatever they may be, it's always riskier to put it in the stock market. And I can't think of any financial advisor or any fiduciary that would reasonably say that's a good way to go. So here's a, there's a couple other thoughts that I have along these lines. And these are a little more out of the box, if you will. So if you have income and you have the ability to pay off your student loans before you graduate, you can do it. You There is nothing to prevent you from making payments on your loan before you graduate. Most people don't, and a lot of people don't know they can, but you have the ability to do that. And when you do something like that, it also pays down the principal, not the interest. And the principal when you cut that down, it reduces the amount of interest that you pay over the life of the loan, which makes the loan air quote cheaper in the long run. So if you, you know, I guess for me, I would think about either saving the money or paying it towards the interest or paying it towards the principal of the loan. So that if I could do that before I graduate, again, this is hypothetical. I don't know if Ryan has that ability or, or kind of where he's sitting with that. This is just be speculating, but that would be something that I would consider to 
as a great way of helping pay off a loan faster because that 500k is a big chunk of change and if you have interest on that three four percent and that compounds that's going to be another big chunk of change so anything you could do to reduce that in the meantime would be awesome so i guess those would be some of the thoughts that i have and it's those kinds of things are easy to do you just call up your student loan provider tell them i want to start making payments even though i haven't graduated i wanted to go towards the principal of the loan and they'll take care of it for you it's actually pretty simple that's i guess that's my thought what are your thoughts on any of those ideas Yeah, I like the idea a lot. I think there's a basic psychological tendency when you have extra money that you're going to want to blow it. And if if you have some money that you have stashed, why not just pay it off and you're paying off a bill? And like Dave said, you're getting ahead of that compounding. And that way you can't do something stupid with it into the market. And you start to go down that path, it could go really poorly. If That's the thing about the stock market, right? It's a fantastic place to build wealth. I'm all about it. The problem is every 10 to 15, 20 year period, you get a crash. It's always recovered after the crash, but it also takes several years. And so just like we can count on the earth rotating around the sun, you can count on the stock market crashing. That's why you want to be prepared and not put, like you said, money that you need into something like that when you might potentially need it. Yeah. We're not trying to be Debbie Downers, Ryan, but you have to think about logically what would be in your best interest for the long term. And if you have the money to use towards either saving it or paying off the debt ahead of as head of schedule i would be i would veer towards something a little more stable whether it's saving the money or putting that towards uh, unfortunately there is no safe easy way to put it someplace that's you know going to earn you 10 percent over the next two or three years it, you could do it in the market but it's not going to be safe and it, it's not a, it's not a good place to put it for that those kinds of things whether it's a house or a student loan All right, so let's move on to the next question. So we have, if you believe in a stock tremendously, is it still a bad idea to have shares in both your Roth and brokerage account? The compound interest would be at the same effect, but I find myself with 15 different stocks. It's hard to spread the money. I'm sure you're flooded with emails, but would love any help you could send my way. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on this? this is an interesting question. So my thoughts are you can most definitely buy a stock both in a Roth and a brokerage account. Obviously, you don't get the tax benefits when you're doing it in the brokerage account. So it does slow down that compound interest. Assuming you're, you know, if you don't sell, you're not going to slow down the compound interest, but you will have less in dividends to reinvest. So you do have a bit of a slowdown there. I think Andy might have said that one time on the podcast. I can't remember if if it was on the show or if it was uh, elsewhere. But if you have a mix of brokerage and Roth money, so Roth IRA right now, the annual limit's like $6,000. You can put $6,000 in. Once you've done that, you've maxed it out for the year. Any other money you want to try to invest, you're going to pay taxes on and, and put it in a brokerage account. Not talking about 401ks right now, but just talking about these two. And so if you have a dividend, if you have stocks that pay dividends, stocks that don't pay dividends, you would want the stocks that pay dividends to be in your Roth because you're not paying taxes on those dividends. 
And then the stocks that don't pay dividends you'd have in your brokerage account, you're not going to get tax on those until you sell or until they pay a dividend. The dividend tax, it's not as bad as like a capital gains tax necessarily if you're jumping in and out of stocks. So I wouldn't pull out my hair over it too much. I would say when it comes to trying to maximize for retirement, make sure you're thinking about the 401k also, because we can all believe in a particular stock tremendously. But if you're leaving free money on the table that you could have Uncle Sam foot part of the bill with some of these tax advantaged accounts, take advantage of those as much as you can. And so one of the things you can do is you can max out a Roth and then also max out your 401k and then go to the brokerage account. And then you can play with the stocks from there. But definitely, 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 I think that's where I would see the priority as. Yeah, the, that's a great answer. And I would agree with that. I think it's a it's a good problem to have if you're able to max out your Roth IRA and then you're worried about opening a brokerage account so that you can invest more. That's a good problem to have for sure. And I guess I would definitely agree with what Andrew was saying. If you have to, if you have to split them up, definitely put the dividend paying companies in the Roth because that's where you're going to get the most advantage compounding wise as well as tax wise. And in the long run, you're going to thank yourself. And I guess with the brokerage account, you know, it's, it is what it is and you just, you got to go with it. But I think the progression that Andrew was talking about is really the best way to go in the long term for you. Because if you can take advantage of that free money with a 401k, which doesn't get enough love, I think in the investing world, if you can max that out and max out the Roth, you're in good shape. And that's a first world problem to worry about the brokerage account and having other things to, to invest in. That's a great problem to have. Doubling up on the company, if you really believe in in Amazon <laughs> and you want to have them in both, then hey, more power to you. But I think that's I think following Andrew's advice is probably the best way to go with that. So if we were to solve this problem for him, what would be in your mind a good a good amount to put a portfolio in in a stock you feel tremendously confident in? Boy. Let's say it's Amazon for him. What percentage of his portfolio do you think would be? appropriate for a good prudent long-term plan. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's the $24 question, isn't it? So it really comes down to really what your faith is and how much you're willing to bet on that faith. And I'll just throw out a, a few examples. If you run 100% stocks and you have 20 positions, that's what a 5% position on each position. Mm. And that seems to be the standard norm, if you will, 5% give or take is what a lot of people will run in the portfolio world. And if you really have a lot of belief in a particular company, you may bump it up to 10, even 15%. I've seen people do that. And I've seen people talk about that on, on, on FinTwit. And some people will marvel at the, the, the guts that those people have because they're putting so much of their money in that big of a position. Sometimes it's just a matter of the company will grow into that big of a position and they don't rebalance their portfolio. And that's all fine and dandy. Warren Buffett has, I believe, almost 50% of his investment portfolio right now is in Apple. So that's obviously a tremendous amount of conviction that he has in that position. And I guess for me, 
boy, that's a good question. I think the most any of mine have gotten up to has been around 20%. And I felt like that's a, that was a pretty strong conviction, but I wouldn't go above that for me. I think that's just too risky for me personally. I'm an old fuddy duddy. So take that for what it's worth. I think it's good to have that humility of, we all think we're, we all think good about particular companies, but things happen sometimes. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of hurt that can happen from putting 80% of your portfolio in the stock. Oh yeah. For and sure. Not working out. Yeah. Whereas I mean, I, I, you spread it out and not a lot can go. One of our favorite investors, he's always, con- he's had concentrated portfolios. Like he will run, it's not unusual for him to run two or three companies and that's it. That's all he invests in. Charlie Munger, I believe he only has four companies that he invests in. And one of them is not even a company. One of them is a fund that's in China. And I think his other three positions are Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Costco. That's it. Super simple. But he obviously has tremendous conviction in those investments and really believes in them. So it's each to your own. But for me, I I prefer to have to to spread the wealth a little bit, if you will, just because I I don't always I don't have the conviction that Charlie does in Costco. I just I don't, so that's fine. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet. I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerd Wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. All right. So let's so we've beat that horse. Let's move on to the next one. So I have, hi, Andrew. I wanted to thank you and Dave for all the great work you have done. It has really helped me understand and enjoy investing. It has become my favorite hobby and will pay in the future. I was looking at ETFs that match the market like VTI and VOO and came across ProShare ETFs TQQQ or triple cubes, I'll call it. This was structured different and their holdings included items like NASDAQ index swap, Society General, NASDAQ 100 index swap, Bank of America, etc. It also had a short position exposure. Looking at the return, I was surprised with that it was almost 50% higher than the average market ETF, BTI or VOO, which we spoke of. Also, I see that as heavily traded everywhere, the market moves more than usual. Is the triple cube ETF a sound investment, and should I consider it for my portfolio? Thank you for your help. Andrew, what are your thoughts on this really interesting question? Yeah, so I guess you had brought up a general summary of the fund. Maybe you can talk about that and... I definitely have some problems with the leverage structure of it, and I can talk some on that. But what's like the the overview of the fund for people who aren't familiar? Sure. ProShares offers a, they have two index ETFs. The one is the triple cubes, which is just QQQ, and that matches the uh, NASDAQ 100, which is the top companies in the NASDAQ stock index, which is primarily technology companies. There are no financials in the NASDAQ 100. So all these companies, the top 100 by market weighting are tracked by the NASDAQ 100 and the triple Q, or I'm sorry, the the triple Q is the one that kind of tracks that. So the ProShares also offers this other ETF that the questioner is, is mentioning, which is TQQQ. And that is the same index, the NASDAQ 100, but it's tracked in a way that it uses derivatives and it also uses leverage, which means debt. And what they're trying to do is triple the returns of the NASDAQ 100. So for example, if the NASDAQ 100 is up 1%, then the triple cube would be up 3%. Likewise, if the NASDAQ was down 1%, the triple cube would be down 3%. So if you look at the returns, they're leveraged to triple the returns, but they're also leveraged to triple the, the losses as well. It's also, as he mentioned, it is traded a lot. It's 38 billion, well, 38 million uh, shares are traded daily on average, which is a lot. That's a ton of liquidity. So that's a lot of money going in and out of this thing. So anyway, so that's the overview of kind of what the gentleman or the person, I'm sorry, is speaking about for the question. So I guess, what are your thoughts on kind of the the question here? I got the assumption that he wants to buy and hold it as like a long-term investment. And that's absolutely the worst thing you can do with an ETF that has leverage like this. And I think it's called slippage factor, but basically you just, you don't want to buy and hold a leverage ETF and because they're not designed for that. And because the way that the vehicle is structured is you will actually be structured to lose money and you won't get three times the return of the, the NASDAQ index. And so there's a reason why there's so many 
shares traded on it every single day. It's because people know this and, and they're buying in and out. And so it's hard to explain because it, it involves some math. But basically, when you let's say we're up 5%, we're down. I'll make the numbers, we'll try to make the numbers easier. If we were up 20%, and the Nasdaq was up 20%, Nasdaq was up was down 20%. Those are not equal because if the Nasdaq goes from if it goes down 20%, it went from 100 to 80. If you go up 20% from that, you didn't go up another 20. 20% of 80 is only 16. So if we go down 20%, up 20%. We're only we're still down. We're we're only up to 96 instead of back to 100. That's because 20% of the lower is not as much. And so when you're when you're in the market for the long term, that doesn't really affect you. But when you're triple leveraged, so every little two, three percent drop in the market becomes a 10, 15 percent drop because it's triple leveraged, then you start to get that where even when the NASDAQ does bounce back, it doesn't bounce back as high. And the high, the bigger drawdowns, the more that falls, the less money that they're able to leverage up the next day. And so depending on when you can get in, it, it can be really bad. And it's just, it's not really structured as a long-term investment because of things like that. And because of the fact, because they're opening the trades and then they're closing the trades and then they're repositioning it every single day. And so you won't, if you look at the NASDAQ and how it moves, it's not leveraged like that. So it doesn't have the same ups and downs. When you do that on a leveraged basis, you're tripling the losses. Yeah. And that's not a position you want to get yourself into. The concept that Andrew was talking about how if you go down 20%, you have to earn more than 20% to get back to even or above. That is where having a long-term mindset with something like this could really bite you in the butt because the the nasdaq in particular because it's involved with tech stocks there's a lot of volatility and there's a lot of volume moving in and out of, of those investments and over the last couple of weeks we've seen a lot of volatility in the market because there's been various different news items that have come out that have really swayed the market inflation covid things going on in china just our three examples in supply and the supply chain issues. Those three or four things have really caused the market to fluctuate quite a bit. And if you're in something like this over that period of time, it could really hurt. And it really, it's not meant to be a, a long-term investment. I, I heard somebody talking about this kind of idea on a podcast a, a year ago or so. And the person, the, the expert on the show was basically telling them that this is not something you want to do if A, you can't have a tremendous amount of a strong stomach <laughs> is basically what they were saying. If you don't have a strong stomach and you don't have a lot of money to lose, this is not a game you want to play because they were actually talking about one that that six timed the leverage. So it wasn't three times, it was six times the leverage. And they were talking about using that as a way to goose their returns kind of thing. And, and the theory in paper, it sounds great, 
But when you actually have to start living the ups and downs of that, it, it becomes a lot harder to do. And like Andrew was saying, it's not like it's just a gradual slope. All the day-to-day fluctuations are going to affect the returns of the something tremendously. And so like Andrew was saying the volatility or the volume of trading in and out, it's because people are use, putting something like this on for a day or two to try to get a little extra turn and then taking it off and then going back and forth. It's not like buying Costco today and then worrying about it two years from now. It's not the same kind of idea. And so you really got to, you really got to know your stuff and you really got to be pay attention. And if that's something you want to do, then again, more power to you, but that's not a game I want to play. I don't think it's a game most people want to. We didn't even touch on the index swap feature of this. Did we much? Mm-hmm. No, um, that's a little suspicious. And then you have, they, they also, they're also shorting. So who's making that decision? What are they going to short? And what's to say that they know what the right short is versus something else? I'm sure there's some structural reason to do it, to, mm-hmm. to offload some of the other holdings, but it's not a game I would play. Mm-hmm. No, me either. Nope, not at all. All right, so we got time for one more. All right, this one, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll try to parse it down and I'll try to give a decent answer to this. So he says, hey, Andrew, as a newsletter subscriber, I really appreciate when you put DCF estimates into the newsletters. I like understanding what a rough margin of safety I can expect per stock pick. So thank you for providing those every issue. I'm curious if you have shared slash would be willing to share the formula you use when calculating a DCF. And he says some stuff about some of it's floating around online and it's complicated, which I don't blame you because that's that is the reality of it. But if I can boil it down in a nutshell, what's a DCF? We we haven't touched a lot about it, but basically it stands for discounted cash flow, and it's a way to value how much cash is worth. So Warren Buffett he uses the metaphor of one hand in the one bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, and so it's a similar concept because when you're making an investment. You're asking yourself, is this $100 in my hand? Is that worth me going to to get like a bottle of wine? Or is it worth me putting in a company who can give me $200 in 10 years? So then that's, then you get more questions to that is if, if inflation continues and a bottle of wine is cost like $1,000 in 10 years, that's probably not a good trade off. If inflation doesn't cost anything at all, and this is a guaranteed $200 in 10 years, that's a pretty good bet. But then it's also, if there's a 50-50 chance you're going to get the $200 or you're going to get zero, then that's not a good bet. So what a DCF is trying to do is it's trying to take all of those factors and they try to boil it down into numbers, which is crazy. But it's it, it does work and, and it's really what sets the prices of stocks in the markets. And it's very complex. It takes months to learn. So we're not even going to try, but just to get the basic concept of it, you're factoring inflation, you're factoring how much is this, how much are these dollars expected to grow? And then you're factoring what's the risk of those dollars growing. So if I'm going to put money in Microsoft, I have a much better feeling about them being able to grow money than my friend's company he just started yesterday down the street. So that that factors into how expensive a, a company is. Does that and so there's two parts of it. One is you take free cash flow 
which is a whole nother conversation on its own. I, I always, when I write an e-leather issue, I always say what the free cash flow is based on how I'm analyzing it and what I think that's going to be over the long term. So that includes how much is the company going to grow. So we'll just leave that to its side right now because that could get hairy. But let's talk about the other side, which is like the burn the hand and two in the bush. Like, how are we going to determine what what's worth what's what's worth um, what are the risks? What what is worth it to us to money in the future? What's that worth to us? So the other side of the equation is the whole burn the hand and two in the bush, and it's basically we're trying to determine what's cash worth to us now. What's it worth to us in the future? And so for that, we use what's called the discount rate. And so what the discount rate is going to do is it's going to say, look, where, where are interest rates now? Because like we, we answered in the beginning of the episode, if interest rates are low, you're not going to get any interest at the bank. But if interest rates go back to where they were in the 1980s, and there's nothing to say that it couldn't. Like interest rates, they fluctuate. If you look at the history of interest rates, they always fluctuate. That's just part of life. So just because recently we feel like they've been so low for so long, doesn't mean that's how they always have been and will be. If interest rates were at like 10%, I could get 10% return for putting cash in the bank. I probably won't pay as much for stocks because they're going to need to compensate for that. Stocks should be a lot cheaper. So that's where the discount rate comes in with interest rates. And so the way that the numbers kind of work is you can set that number. So you can think of the discount rate as like your hurdle rate. Like how much do I want to make on this investment? And so if, if we had a if we had a company that could give us a hundred dollars a year for ten years, and if we said our discount rate's five percent, then basically after one year, it's worth five percent less. So instead of a hundred dollars, it's worth ninety-five dollars to us. Next year, ninety dollars. Next year, eighty-five dollars. And so that's because every year we're expecting five percent. So basically if I'm getting if I'm putting a hundred dollars this year, I'm getting a hundred dollars next year. That's not good for me because I wanted five percent, so I want one hundred and five percent. So that's where the discount rate comes in, and the math gets complex from that. But that's where, at its most simplest form, you get that idea of what's this burn the hand to in the bush. But just that that basic idea of the money is not worth as much in the future is why you have to set a discount rate. And then you put that in with the free cash flow and you get the DCF. And that's what Warren Buffett has talked about. That is how you value what a stock is at the end of the day. He just has a a crazy brain where he does it all in his head. And he talked about that too. A lot of analysts will tell you, value investors will tell you, there, there there are DCFs that are inherent in every stock price. And it's just the difference is I might think that Microsoft can grow at 10% a year. Somebody else might think that a firm can grow at 30% a year, 40 years, and it's being baked into what the price is in the market, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. That's a perfect answer. And I, I think the easiest way for me to think about the things that Andrew was talking about, because he put, he put it very eloquently, the easiest way that I can think of it is that the discounted cash flow model is a way for us to determine what a company is going to be worth that we want to buy today for the hamburger that we may get tomorrow. Think about the the cash flows, the money that the company creates 
it's worth what it is today. It'll be worth less in the future because of, because of interest rates and inflation. And how much is that total value today? If we buy it today, then how much we should we expect in the future? And the reason why the stock market is excitable today is because the interest rates are so low that people don't have anywhere to put the money to make a decent return that's going to overcome inflation outside of the stock market. We talked about earlier banks, bonds, all these things that are safe and secure investments that 15, 20 years ago you could easily do, like Andrew was saying, now you can't do those and make a decent return. If you put $100,000 in a bank that's earning less than 1%, you're losing money because of inflation. And take out just the the more recent inflation numbers that everybody's arguing about right now. Just in general, the inflation rate is around 2-ish percent, give or take. And don't hold my feet to the fire on that. But in general, it's around that. So anything less than 2%, you're losing money. And so... When interest rates go down as much as they have, and even though the Fed is talking about starting to raise them gradually, 10% is probably not realistic in the next few years, but who knows. But overall, when the interest rates are down, interest in the stock market picks up because you can make more money historically by investing in stocks than you could in in these other avenues of investments. And so that's where some of these theories and these ideas come into play. And without getting into all the numbers of working with a DCF, because that, that is a, that's a rabbit hole. We, we don't want to go down. Andrew don't love talking about this stuff. Don't get me wrong, but I, I, we feel like that we would overwhelm people if we just started really digging into this stuff. And so we don't want to do that to you guys, but I think it's a good idea to talk about the concept of it because this is arguably one of the best ways to value companies to, to figure out how much is it worth and how much should I pay for it? Just like I've talked about before buying an iPhone, a car, a house, whatever, a washing machine. We all spend all this time doing that, but then we don't do the same thing for buying a stock and it should be the same idea. I, we all want to buy that Whirlpool dishwasher for the best price we can get. We should do the same thing with the stocks and the DCF model is the way you can do that. And we have lots of great resources on the website to help people learn that if that's something they really want to go down. But the basic concept is you have to think about what are the cash flows, the bird in the hand? What is that bird worth today and what's it worth in the future? And how do I discount that to account for inflation and interest rates and then value that? Figure out, take all those numbers and add them all up, and that's your value. And that's really what a discounted cash flow model does. And it can look overwhelming. It can look confusing. It Once you figure it out, it's aha. But it can be a little bit overwhelming, of course. But if anybody has any questions about any of this stuff, please, by all means, reach out to Andrew and I. We're here to help you with these things. This is something we get super jazzed about. And Nick asked this this great question. And Nick, if you hear this and you have questions, reach out to me. I'm happy to help you with this. Anyway, that's, I guess, some of my thoughts on Nick's question and a DCF. All right. I guess with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank uh, everybody for writing these great questions. Thank you guys. Keep them coming. As always, we enjoy doing this. And without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. 
Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.